0: Hello and greetings from UNICEF's Office of Virtual Office of Research in Achenti, and welcome to all our panelists and participants from around Africa and beyond. I'm your host Sarah Crow, and this is the tenth and last Leading Minds of 2020. I'm here in Johannesburg, South Africa, for the last Leading Minds, which is a special focus on Sub-Saharan Africa. It was expected to be the worst hit but instead Africa is gaining praise for being amongst the best and waging an effective campaign against the COVID pandemic. The youngest continent on earth, the average age with just 17 and 18 in some parts, Sub-Saharan Africa has experienced a fraction of the death toll elsewhere in the world. While Africa may be winning the numbers game, it has come at a massive cost and the real losses are only just being counted. Among them, 250 million children out of school, bringing to a total of more than 80% of Africa's school children not in school and not learning, a staggering figure. The region has been thrown into its first ever economic recession. Drastically cut aid budgets in donor countries will be a further hit. And on top of it, there's the climate crisis. However, Africa still has several cards to play blessed with natural resources, as you can see, with the glorious sun, and of course, the powerful youth card, another. So can young people flip this disaster and turn it into a demographic dividend? We'll explore with our great panelists, some out of the box approaches for a brighter future. And here they are, from pretty much four corners of the continent, starting in Dakar, Senegal, El Hajj Assay, former head of the International Federation of the Red Cross. Welcome, bienvenue. From Johannesburg, with me here in, uh, in South Africa, Ndoni Mpunu, climate scientist and gender activist. And of course, you can hear the ibises overhead. From Nairobi, we have the regional director of UNICEF, uh, Eastern and Southern African office, Mohamed Fall. Welcome, Mohamed. And finally, we have Cameroonian Eugenie Kodogo, PhD student in China and Africa relations. Bienvenue à toi aussi. I'm going to be speaking to them all, all of you in a minute. And my colleague David Anthony will be checking out the audience questions and directing the panelists to land on some solutions. David, you and I have been working in one way or another for many years in Africa or with Africa, it's close to our hearts. I was brought up here, worked as a journalist with the UN. What are you personally hoping to get and hear from our panellists and our participants today?
1: Thanks, Sarah, and welcome to everyone. I personally am um, looking for three things, Sarah. First of all, Africa's experience of COVID and particularly how its youth have coped. Secondly, the climate crisis, which is another looming crisis for Africa. It's done the least damage, but it's probably gonna be hurt the hardest. And then thirdly about this demographic dividend, which you mentioned, uh, which is now the big hope. But I'd like to hear from our panelists if they really think it's possible after Africa's first ever recession. Back to you, Sarah.
0: Thanks, David. And indeed the climate crisis, there's certainly no vaccines for the climate crisis. You know, it struck me yesterday when the United Nations Secretary General, Antonio Guterres said, the world is on a suicidal war against the planet. And it is the people, young people, who have woken up world leaders to the crisis. They really do have that power. And in fact, not far from where I am right now, back in 1976, it was the children of Soweto who woke up the world to apartheid. And Africa has youth on its side. So with that in mind, let me put the first question to all our panelists, to please answer in 30, 40 seconds directly to the camera. What for you is the very worst thing that has come out of the COVID pandemic this year for Africa and the best? Let me start first to, with Ndoni Mkhunu right here in Johannesburg, then we'll move to Dakar, Senegal, to Assai, and then to Nairobi, to Mahmoud Fall, and then on to Eugenie Kodogo. Over to you first, Ndoni.
2: Hi everyone, Uh, it's a great pleasure to be here. I think the worst um, thing that has happened in our continent would be the job loss. The best thing has been to kind of look into how we can buy local products to help our economy to come up again.
0: Thank you, over to you in Dakar, Asai.
3: Well, the worst is uh, exacerbated vulnerabilities you know, at all levels. And you know, the best is definitely a consciousness, you know, that uh, a shock does not have to be a crisis, you know, if we respond, and then the responses have to be at all levels.
0: Nairobi.
4: Thanks, Sarah. And um, let me just maybe add to what my fellow panelists said. And that the worst is that something that started as a public health crisis in the continent has turned into a child-children crisis, and that we can see across the board when it comes to humanization, education, access to all services. The good side is that uh, it reminds us of uh, the oneness of our humanity, something that has started in China now has taken the whole world and it's the whole world that that kind of
5: Eugenie. The worst thing has been to take children out of school in a continent where um, there's, it's already a struggle to bring all children to school. And I think the best thing, in my opinion, will be the acknowledgement that traditional education doesn't have to continue, that we can have new ways of bringing and teaching children without having to rely on normal and
0: traditional infrastructures. Thanks very much, Eugenie. Yes, the the school issue is is major. Let's just have a a minute to reflect on some of that new data first. Since the COVID pandemic in Sub-Saharan Africa, school closures meant 250 million more children were out of school, a total of 350 million. Learning completely stopped for most of them. The economic contraction increased child poverty rates by 10% pushing 26 million more children below poverty lines. The first ever economic recession in sub-Saharan Africa led to a cut of more than 6% per capita growth. About 50 million people have been pushed into extreme poverty, the largest ever in one year. Thank you, now let me turn to, to our side. Uh, you've got tremendous experience in the humanitarian world and you're a humanitarian aid expert uh, having, having lived and worked so many years on the African continent but also abroad, in your view have African governments focused too heavily on counting cases and mortality of COVID following too closely the industrialized north model with hard lockdowns, closing entire economies, closing schools with the result now, as we've heard from the other panelists, that children are paying the highest price. So
3: first of all, uh, African governments, like uh, most of the governments in all the world, have not been prepared at all. Climate shocks will always happen. Health shocks will always happen but they don't have to become crisis or emergencies. The fact that they become a crisis will depend pretty much on the level of preparedness or not. It will depend on the level of early action and or not. It will be depending on the accompanying measures you know, that are being taken or not. And it will be depending also on the action that are taken to preserve gains and then to preserve assets that one has. And in that spirit, you know, children are assets. You know that one, you know, should preserve and then should, you know, protect. Public health measures, you know, they always, you know, come at a price. But if the accompanying measures are taken and are taken on time, and one is prepared before the crisis hits, then we will not have, you know, consequences. The dramatic consequences we have. So governments really failed here bluntly in being prepared. They Kind of operate in a panic mode and then when they panic they neglect and when they neglect of course the consequences are not a dire the way we see it we talk about children not going to school it's not only about learning it's about also using uh, losing an opportunity to be protected it is a losing an opportunity to socialize it is a using an opportunity to have an enabling environment when they strive well schools are empty streets are empty but Houses are full for those who can afford a house. Huts are full and they're they're full of children who are trying to cope and facing many other challenges that will be exacerbating their vulnerabilities. I hope it's going to be a wake-up call for governments that they get out of the cycle of panic and neglect and then making sure that A, they prepare and B, when public health measures are taken, assets are being preserved and among those assets, you know, put children at the centre.
0: It's, a very, it's, it's very worrying that cycle of panic and neglect, as you say, uh, and you've actually had a, a tremendous amount of experience on, particularly on health crises over so many years, Ebola, cholera, measles outbreaks, polio. Uh, nearly 20 years ago now, with the HIV and AIDS pandemic, African governments pledged through the Abuja Declaration to put, to put aside 15% of their budgets to the health sector, what became of that, uh, Sai, and and should it be revitalized in the, in the wake of this pandemic
3: over the years in our know, health uh, and emergencies and humanitarian field so many promises are being made and so many promises are being broken we promised you know many 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 years ago primary health care through the bakumbamoko initiatives you know that you know people will start you know life you know safe, and not only survive, but strive, did we deliver? We promised health for all by the year 2000, way in 2020, did we deliver? We promised back in Abuja 2001, 15% of national budget going into health, did we deliver? The question is definitely no, but the question is then, the answer is no, and the question is then, what happened, what is the accountability? And that is that failing of accountability, which is leading to the breakdown of leadership that we are seeing today in our world. And the breakdown of leadership is leading into something even more worrisome, which is the trust which is eroded, trust that is completely eroded between governments and citizens. And the world is crying now, crying badly for responsible leadership, crying for active citizenship, Crying for accountability, so that promises that are made are delivered on, and that is a high time, you know, to come back, you know, to those promises. Most importantly, to deliver on them and sustain them on the long term. You know, the development, as we all know, it is a long-term process. It is a long-term accompaniment. It is then what we expect, you know, leaders to do, and leaders seem to be failing us together. And worse, they are failing those of us who are not only assets of today but of the future which is our children.
0: Thanks Asai. You've always pushed the industrialized world to you know pay its dues, To show solidarity, international solidarity, and you've not only spared, you haven't spared African governments either when it comes to their shared responsibility. Uh, You've spoken about leadership and the world crying out for this leadership probably more than at any other time in history because this is a -a once-in-a-century crisis, triple crisis when it comes to africa so how what next you know what are the three areas the three things that you think could really foster leadership on the african continent right now
3: i think first of all we need leadership globally you know based on the understanding that we only have you know one humanity that we have to care for and we have only one planet that we need to protect and this shock like you know covid is reminding us badly you know, that simple reality. None of us will be safe until we all are. Unfortunately, we seem to be withdrawing in what is called in very nice world, you know, a nationalism, a health nationalism, a vaccine nationalism, a COVID nationalism, which is nothing but an egoism and a lack of understanding, you know, that solidarity and sharing in these times is not a charity. It is just a practical way to make sure you know, that the investment that I'm making in my country will not be threatened or undermined by the lack of action and an investment somewhere else. And you know, those who have you know greater means, of course, we are looking up to them, you know, also to play their part in a proportionate way. But we have not seen that. We've seen people grabbing everything that was available. They grabbed mask, you know, off the world market, they grabbed respirators. And everybody, even if the poorer countries had money, they could not have access to those commodities. But we should not let the other countries and the African countries of the hook. They have the same level of responsibility. They are leaders also in their own right. They have their citizens. And what is a leader that does not care for the well-being of their population, of their people? And so we expect that they play exactly the same role that health and well-being of people it's not just an expense, it is an investment, an investment that is bringing back, you know, a dividend. And that's the kind of accountability, you know, that we expect them also to play. And that's when you gain the respect, the respect of your citizens and the respect of your peers on the global scene.
0: So let me push you then, what are those three things? You've spoken about respect, What what else would you see as those three things that would really foster leadership?
3: Well, first of all, deliver on the promises you make. And that is uh, the basis of accountability. Two, you know, invest where it matters most. You know, it is, again, in our know, health, education, protection, and I'm insisting here protection, because often it is coming as an afterthought that we say, OK, we feed people first, we educate them first, and then maybe we protect them. When we look at it that way, it's going to be too late you know, for too many. and. What I expect also, which is most important along the lines, is to create an environment of peace and stability. Because many people, unfortunately, on our continent, and we are seeing it now day by day, all the way from the Sahel to the Horn of Africa, that people are crying for peace. They're crying for stability. They're crying for normalcy. There is nothing normal to see thousands of women and children on the street again, having to leave home because home is no longer safe. It is not normal to see children uh, schools being empty and occupied by soldiers. It is not normal not to see that we are seeing these rates of malnutrition in a number of stunting children that is really undermining the future of our continent. Peace, stability, that is a great enabling environment, invest where it is needed and deliver and be accountable.
0: And of course, and of course, the climate crisis, which of course knows no borders at all. So on the climate, let me turn now to Nduni Punu. Uh, you of course have done a tremendous amount of work in this in this area. You're a, you're a climate scientist, a gender activist, and you're founder of the Black Women in Science. Uh, and you've also been very involved in the Fridays for Future movement with with Greta Thunberg, really pushing for a greater role. For young African women in science, uh, and as in, indeed as climate scientists, in a year where science particularly has never mattered more than ever, what do you think is holding back young African women in science? Sure,
2: um, definitely there's an element of communication and a question of what do people want to see? How do people want to see climate activism and how do they want it to be known to the world. So, unfortunately, climate change, climate activism is really ruled along with science, but then the communicators of that, who are the leaders and who are the ones that are in charge? And so I would say that there are many women activists in the climate sector, but maybe they're just not given the space to actually have the voice in the media and internationally. And so we need to just be sure of who's in control of communicating these kind of stats
0: you heard earlier um, and donny the the comments there from from Asai about uh, leadership, in particular, uh, and and the shared leadership, the shared responsibility. You've spoken a lot about uh, the bottoms up approach, that that sort of sense that really need that needs to happen with climate change, in particular, and that you're tired of the African vulnerability uh, narrative, uh, which you, which you've said. What what do you think? I've asked Asai about fostering leadership. What do you think needs to be done? to foster African youth activism on uh, on the climate.
2: Sure, I think the first thing that we need to do is we need to prioritize indigenous knowledge. We need to prioritize the local knowledge and what is going on in the country. Um, There is a narrative around Africa struggling and being the most vulnerable to the changes of climate change. But if you look into if you look deeper into the rural communities into other communities within Africa, you see a lot of young people and older people already adapting to these kind of changes. It may not be the the conventional um, definition of adaptation, but they are adapting. And so for leaders to actually and for Africans to actually see a bottom up approach, we need to prioritize the, the, the indigenous knowledge people.
0: And in that, indi- the indigenous knowledge uh, part of that is also finding some solutions, like jobs. You've, in your in your the report that you co-authored uh, this year uh, with Greenpeace, extreme weather, uh, you say that despite African countries having the best renewable energy resources in the world, energy poverty really dominates the continent and you've pointed to green jobs and indeed just yesterday the United Nations Secretary General spoke about flipping the green switch on the African Green Deal. So how would that change? How would that help ignite leadership when you look at the green jobs story? Hmm.
2: So I, I honestly truly believe that the way in which African or climate activism has been done internationally has not actually been tailor-made for the African continent. And so you see the way and the message in which it's done internationally, it's kind of like a disconnection between with the African continent and the people inside um, Africa. And the issue there is that when we speak about climate change, there is some kind of a dissociation. There is some kind of a thinking that this is a westernized problem. And to make sure that we almost grab the attention of our leaders, we need to link climate change solutions to the economy, climate change solutions to jobs, climate change solutions to eradicating poverty. And I think by including green jobs within the voice of climate activism and showing the need for us to take action, we definitely need to incorporate green jobs in it
0: green jobs well let's just take a moment now to reflect it's going to be the climate crisis is going to be the united nations number one priority next year so let's just take literally one minute to have the full visual effect of what is happening on the african continent uh, and let that sink in in this little video again you saw the the opportunities there for young people really to take center stage. Let me move now to Eugenie Kodogo, the uh, PhD scholar. She's now currently in uh, Florence in Italy, finishing her PhD and she was doing some internship there. Uh, You also completed your political science and you spent a, a political science degree, you spent several years in China. Uh, even though you're surprisingly very young, you've achieved an awful lot in this. In these very, very, at your very young age of uh, early 20s, uh, but what, what have you seen when you've seen the Asian tigers, as they're called, reaping the demographic dividends, uh, leaping into the future? What is holding back Africa's young lions, do you think, Eugenie?
5: I think as we already discussed, um, Africa's young population is definitely an asset. But unfortunately, this population is also very neglected. Uh, We talk a lot about investing in Africa, how uh, countries need to enact policies to allow more investment in. But evidence show that for a country to reap the benefits of investment, human capital is a very, very important factor in the equation. So if you have a massive population and you have a young population that is not qualified and educated, then it becomes a burden rather than an asset. What I saw in China and when I was doing my interviews in Africa for my dissertation, I often asked the question, why China? As I was studying China, Africa, and I was always told that China was where Africa is today. China is now way ahead and it is a model for Africa to to think of ways to get there. Chinese model is more reliable, relatable if we can say. Uh, but when I when I arrived in China in 2007, I remember reading documents about how China Chinese open door policy, and I remember that China increases its spending on its populace, on its children very early on. Uh, China imposed local content requirement on foreign investment that was coming in. Uh, China also directed investment to manufacturing because of its capacity to produce jobs. But when I look at what is happening in Africa, this is not what is done. Oftentimes we are talked about, but we are not talked to. No one really knows what young Africans really want and what they are really capable of. And I believe that as long as we are not investing first, investing in investment is not directed to African young people. It would be very difficult for Africa to reap that dividend benefit, especially in the moment where the many parts in the world are facing aging population. Africa is praised for its young population. And I think it is a, it's an opportunity to do more there.
0: Yeah. Eugenie, you, 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 you've spent uh, growing up in the Cameroon. Uh, what, what, have you, what do you think is unfolding there now, given this sort of tremendous impact that the pandemic has had On young people it's like they are paying the price of a disease that's hitting older people particularly in Africa where it's such a young population Uh, they're showing their anger in all kinds of ways their frustration on social media and so on and that impact that they've had this loss of opportunities this loss of uh, their futures quite simply Um, how do you think they're seeing this crisis right now what do you hear from your peers, your friends, your other students who are seeing this unfold in their own countries across Africa?
5: But what I see in Africa is interesting because um, like in every part of the world is um, there is a, there's always a difference every country offers a different space and opportunities for young people to express their concerns so those countries and those regions or those places in even in Cameroon where people have the means to express what they feel through social media. Let's remember that not everyone has a cell phone in Africa um, or in Cameroon, for that matter. Uh, They do express what they feel. Those who have the means to compensate for the losses occurred during the pandemic try to catch up. But the massive, the big majority of young people in Africa and in Cameroon in particular do not have this space and do not have those means. What do they do? Uh, Many of them will not return to school because families have lost their livelihoods. Uh, Many of them have gotten used used to being at home, so they decided that they are not going back because they are too far behind anyway and they are never going to be able to catch up. Um, Many more will attempt to cross the ocean in order to, to to, to to, to look for a better life what i think our governments, uh, what those who are expressing themselves are trying to tell our government and what i hope our governments will hear is that maybe it is time to stop looking for a savior and for and applying already made solutions to problems that hit the continent maybe it's also time to start realizing that the decisions that were made during this pandemic were not necessarily the best in terms of what as long as africa is concerned And um, that they need to find ways now to make sure that all those children that we're taking out of school will go back to school. And they need to reconsider how we see and how we uh, discuss education in Africa. And we need to recreate an education system that provides for Africans without necessarily matching what richer countries see as normal.
0: Um, you've men- you mentioned migration. That's a really important point, and I and I hope one that uh, the regional director of UNICEF in Nairobi uh, will pick up, because of course there's also ongoing conflicts in Ethiopia right now. That's a new conflict that's just started on top of what already has been expiring, and 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 you know what's what's happened this year. Um, if you if you look at some of the areas that you've spoken of, the the opportunities in terms of investment. And new jobs that you heard from Indoni, you also heard earlier from, from Asai. Uh, what, what do you think young Africans can learn from young Asians? In creating opportunities themselves?
5: I think that to create opportunity, Africans need to be given the tools for that. Um, we, we, we can learn as much as we want, but if we are not given the context to apply what we learn, we, there is nothing to do there. What I've seen in Asia is that there is this young entrepreneurship that is really recurrent there. Um, many Chinese lift themselves out of poverty and their families and communities through startups that they created. They relied a lot on social media, on digital infrastructure. But in Africa, it's not the case. We don't have that. We, are in a world, we live in a world now where connection between different countries and different continents is so easy. But when I was inviting a few of my university friends to this uh, talk, many told me I would love to attend, but it would cost me a lot of money to have internet and attend something live for that long. So we don't have the opportunities. We don't need to learn much from anyone else. I think every young group has its own strengths and challenges. We as Africans, we have our own. We have our assets. What we need is to be given the tools to do what we can do with what we have. This is why, as um, Ndoni said, creating job, but also empowering us and giving us the tools, investment in infrastructure, investment in digital infrastructure, most importantly, because it costs less, let's face it, and also investment in training and alternative education. Because as long as we see education in Africa as education in France, we are never getting there. That's, 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 my, that's my thought. I actually think that a lot of young people
0: around the world have a lot to learn from us. <laughs> yes, that, that, that old, school, old school form of education that was created in colonial Africa in the 19th century is an outdated model, is it not? Let me turn now to Nairobi, uh, to Mohammed Four. Uh, You've COVID has been far less deadly especially in sub-Saharan Africa and especially its effect on children. Yet today, UNICEF has launched its biggest ever record-breaking humanitarian action appeal, and your region is, of course, one of the biggest recipients. With all that's going on in the world and this this, you know, huge economic recession anyway, as well as financial ruin in many of the traditional donor countries, why is this so urgent right now? In your region and in Sub-Saharan Africa as a whole, Mohammed.
4: Thanks, Sarah. Um, I'm really thrilled to be part of such a, a great panel and rich discussion. Uh, let me just come back to the point I made in the beginning. I mean, I mentioned it as a public crisis started somewhere in the world in China and now become a global pandemic. But for our region, as you say, it did not hit as bad as it was predicted in the beginning. And what we rather see was something that has been transformed into a children crisis. I think us and other panelists have spoken at length about the impact on the education sectors, the impact on the protection, the abuse, and all forms of exploitation or increase abuse that children are facing in this as faced in the lockdown period. I just wanted to come back on two points. One is um, in the big picture that has presented where governments in Africa fail to meet their commitment, whether it is the Abuja declaration or to invest as appropriately in the basic social services. We have seen also some breakthrough. We have seen breakthrough in terms of increased coverage of humanization, which prevents child death year by year and accumulated was millions of lives of children that have been saved in the continent. We have seen also treatment of malnutrition making huge progress, huge leap in the past decade. We have seen treatment of HIV, by the way. I'm leading a region which is having the biggest case load of HIV. But the way Access to treatment have lessened the burden of HIV in this region was almost unique in the history of mankind. But those are the aspects that is of major concern and the threats and the revers and the setback we are witnessing in each one of these areas. That's for me the biggest challenge and the biggest threat that children are facing. Of course, on top of it and everything that was prior to the crisis, uh, we talk about the climate crisis. We talk about uh, some. Inequalities, we talk about so many challenges that was there, but on top of those challenges and on top of the impact, social economic level, when it comes to children, it's those reverse. And I think while we launch this appeal, what we were trying to do also is to make sure that those gains that have been hardly fought year by year over decades will not be lost.
0: We want to a- approve. Sorry. Yeah. Yeah, Go ahead. Now, uh, I just that's... want
4: to say that one of the big learning, also as, uh, as you was saying earlier, is that this crisis has shown us that there is no progress which is guaranteed to be maintained unless you create a way to sustain it. No one could believe that we can have such a massive loss in immunization coverage in a few months. Now, right. how do you strengthen the system to make sure that you sustain the gain you have, will be maybe a takeaway from this crisis, things that we will be investing in. This is part of the sort of appeal that we are making.
0: Right, it's a, it's a huge challenge indeed. And your report, Catastrophe for Children, shows so so starkly just what a children's crisis this is right now. Uh, and you said in that report that African governments have reallocated as much as they can to the crisis, but it's not enough. Uh, and given the fact, as I mentioned earlier, You've got the UK, for instance, has, is cutting its budget. Several of the other traditional donor countries are going to be either their economies are shrinking, so there'll be less left for support, less left for aid for Africa. What are some of the out of box ideas that you've brought up in that report? That, you know, where is the money going to come from? You mentioned, for instance, IMF. Uh, relief debt, debt relief funds. Tell, tell us a little bit more about some of those ideas.
4: Just to say that, uh, yes, it was mentioned that now growing nationalism is pushing people to look at in-works when it comes to addressing the pandemic or addressing its social economic impact. But I'm seeing also a ray of hope. Um, the last G20 summit has pushed the international financial institution to increase their ceiling of borrowing and their ceiling of lending um, to help um, support the recovery process in these countries. Um, but I, what I feel is important is that uh, not only the money, the money will be always found, but it is the architecture and it is the spirit that drives that money. And as we're saying, no one will be safe until everyone is safe. I think if there is one reminder in this crisis, it's, as I was saying earlier, the oneness of humanity, we have to build on that and reclaim the international solidarity, the multilateralism. There is one idea that is floated in the report, which is talking about a financial um, facilities that could focus on human capital development we have financial facilities for health, financial facilities for different sectors like education. But I think this needs to be broadened and look at the human capital development as a global perspective, that's one thing. And that's where I see the investment we need to make on the young people being a a lever for change, being a lever for transformation. If we have the right investment, and you refer to the Southeast Asian example, those examples clearly show that It's not underground wealth that puts South Korea or Singapore where they are or China. It's not mineral resources that put them there. It's most importantly the investment that they made on their human capital that have helped. And I think with this financing facility, that's one thing. The second idea is just how can we tap into the innovation and to the new platform that has created opportunity? Never than before, we have an opportunity to get young people connected, to get young people access to skills, to get young people access to knowledge, and this is the digital opportunity era that could be exploited. And we—it's helping to address some challenges in education right now. But I'm sure moving forward, this can be amplified and bring about much bigger opportunity. And I think with the thinking that is behind this report, having or tapping into the international solidarity. But also in engaging into the most innovative and transformative way of doing things, we can see some of the critical issues faced by young people or faced by Africans to be addressed moving forward. And not only to continue to count on our mineral resources or our underground wealth, which to me is just part of the solution. But the biggest part of the solution is on the quality of human being, the quality of the uh, a human capital that we will uh, uh, develop through education, health, nutrition, access to employment, access to dignity, access to protection. Over to you. I,
0: you've spoken about hope. I'm glad you mentioned hope because there's lots of it and we have, to, we have to keep on believing in hope. Are you hopeful now that you'll be able to get that sort of support from not only outside from the traditional donors, but you've seen other countries, for instance, Zambia just last week, uh, reneging on on debt. And that's considered to be one of the possibilities going forward is that more and more African countries will be forced to renege on their debt. So what are some of the other solutions to, to really harness this hope, this extraordinary opportunity that Africa has with the demographic dividend that will—it's once once in a century, really, isn't it? Once in a, once in, in a generation with such the youth bulge, you know how to how to harness that going forward.
4: Thanks, Sarah. When I saw the news about Zambia defaulting on paying its debt, which by the way started earlier and prior to the COVID, because I'm following Zambia and following their commitment on global facility for access to vaccines and all, it was there. But it reminds me of one thing that I share with my colleagues who are youngers, that in the end of the 80s, I, think I was almost in the same situation, where they were caught by a level of debt which compromised all their investment into the basic social services. That's how USEP came with this uh, structural adjustment with human face, which was a concept but translated into policy, has completely changed. The development discourse have completely changed the landscape and brought about and brought up the issue of human capital development. That was a kind of landmark um, report, engagement, a breakthrough into development and into international cooperation. We are seeing more and more also this voice coming together. You have seen already the high uh, demand for solidarity when it comes to vaccines against COVID-19. We have seen the COVAX mechanism that has been put in place, and that has gathered now over 150 countries already. And financial institutions are so ready to support. World Bank, putting aside $12 billion. Those are the, the But the point I wanted to mention in terms of dividends is the one that I made earlier by saying that the only wealth we have is not what we have on the ground. It's not the mineral resources. The only wealth we have is the demographic that we have. And it has been shown, why Africa has less mortality than any other continent. It's because of the usefulness of the, its population. It's because also they have learned to previous crisis, how to cope with crisis. Now, if the right investment is made on that young population, taking into account the new opportunity offers to learn differently, to teach differently, to address issues of access to learning space by using digital or online platform. To look at new area where, for example, that we can conquer, to protect the nature by raising children with the full awareness that this nature is theirs and their future depends on it. And also having a narrative which restore hope and give back hope to young people. When I see those young people crossing the oceans, I'm not sure that they are even clear that they will find job in the other shore. But what they are going to look for is something they hope to find. And what is putting them in that mood is a loss of hope of things that they can find in their motherland. I think that narrative also needs to be crafted. And I see young people throughout the world now are connected throughout the world are accessing to platforms which put them together where they can express citizenship, where they can And I'm saying to the young generation, like money, climate activists, and all, you know, maybe our generation was the anti-apartheid five generation, But the generation we have today is a generation that needs to restore hope for the continent, but needs to look at what are the key challenges of the continent. If those right investments are made to build that capital, I'm sure we will be on the right.
0: Thank you, Mohammed. I'm going to interrupt you there because we're gonna have to go to a poll question Uh, and I'm gonna pass over now to David. And of course, we've had a number of of questions coming in as well. So David, take us away on the poll question, which unfortunately none of the the panelists can answer. It's open only to participants. Over to you, David.
1: Thanks, Sarah. And what a great discussion we've had. And I'm gonna be coming back to our panelists to talk to them about solutions in just a little while. If we can bring up the poll, please. Okay, so our poll question for our audience is this: If you were a Minister of Finance or president in a low to middle income country in sub-Saharan Africa, where would you concentrate your limited resources during the COVID era? Would you a address immediate crisis of COVID-related uh, recession and deepening poverty through expanding social protection and pursuing debt relief and greater external aid? Or B, using local skills, wealth, knowledge, and put aside a bigger proportion of the budget into health to build stronger health systems? Or C, would you invest in building the human capital of children and young people through better educational opportunities, vocational skills, green jobs, digital literacy, and youth entrepreneurship, and supporting climate mitigation measures? So, uh, unfortunately, our panellists can't vote, but they can think about a particular question as, as the audience does, and um, I'm gonna come back to all of them on this, as we end the show, which is about the game changers. Uh, but first I'm gonna to go to um, both Az and uh, Mohammed. Uh, good to see you both. And um, I wanna ask you a question really about how we restore education. Uh, on, the, on the questions and answers, a lot of people have been asking about what do we do, how to get kids back into school. So starting with you Az, well, how do we restore education in Africa at this time?
3: Well, it, it all depends you know, on the baseline that we are starting uh, from. So uh, doing things in the middle of a crisis is extremely difficult. I think uh, you know, if uh, you were advanced you know, enough you know, before the crisis, you will be in a much better place, you know, in a crisis, you know, to build on and then restore that because your baseline will be a completely, you know, different one. So we will see that uh, in those places where efforts were made, you know, to in education, in in a presential way as well as in our know, online, you know, to have some form of continuation of education and to build on that and restore it back would be very, very relatively easy. In other places where then there were a struggle and the baseline was so low, then this crisis would hit so hard, you know, that you will be starting, you know, from a bottom that is much deeper. But in any case, you know, one will have them to invest. And the question will be just what will be the level of investment that will be made. And education is always talked about, you know, as one title, right? but, you know, uh, of course, you need to go about the space, the geographic space, we need to talk about you know the teachers and then their training and their skills. We need to talk about you know the materials, you know, including you know many of these innovations that you know our colleagues you know are talking about. So again, keep it as a priority among all those kind of investments we've talked about. You know, would be very important.
1: Thanks, As Mohammed. Same question: How do we restore education?
4: Thanks, David. Um, let me first say that. Uh, we can't uh, now link all the problems faced in the continent with regard to education through the pandemic. We have massive issues related to access. We have massive issues related to learning outcome. We have issues of the relevance of the education that is delivered based on the needs compared to the needs of the different countries or society or communities in the continent. I think the shift of paradigm we need to look at is that what was the challenge for access or quality and for maybe relevance of the education system. For me, the access was mostly based on resources. We didn't have enough school, we didn't have enough teacher, we didn't have enough or school or distance or sometimes conflict was pushing away or security was preventing children um, to, 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 to go safely to school. Or sometimes culturally, and so people wouldn't recognize themselves in the education system and will completely deny it and refuse to send their children. The opportunity I'm seeing is that today, with some of the uh, um, arising or newly existing platform, which has been tested, by the way, through the crisis, and that's where I see this crisis being an opportunity to not only address the issues brought about by the crisis, but the issue that was existing prior to the crisis. This is how we show that, of course, yes, if you don't have enough teachers who provide the required quality, maybe online, on a website, on a digital platform, you can have the best of your teacher maybe providing lesson or providing teaching and learning activities that can benefit larger number of children than in a classroom. Today, with distance learning, or with digital opportunity, with possibility of connecting school, some of the challenge that was related to the physical barriers of access to education can also be addressed, and the opportunity are there. Now, what we need to do, is that, and what the crisis has shown, is that the digital opportunity also is showing a divide, because not everyone access to it. We have seen, for example, in the region of Eastern and Southern Africa, out of 140 million children whose education was disrupted, probably maybe 20 to 25 million children only could go using digital or could go online or distance learning using digital platform. Now, I think the prioritization which address also the inequity that characterize our society is one thing that we need to look at. If we want to have the the the, the, the quantum leap that we need in transforming education, providing access, providing quality. We need to prioritize the way we target the people or the people we are serving. Looking at those who are the poorest in the rural area, making sure that they have access to this digital platform, looking at the poorest in the rural uh, in, the, um, in the urban slum, looking at the IDPs, looking at the refugees, those multi disadvantaged are, I think, for me, the sector where really the transformation would come. And we have example, look at the mobile banking in Kenya. Who could believe that in such a short year a short time banking can reach the last Kenyan, wherever you are just using a mobile phone? How can we now build on those kind of transformation to look at education but look at education and investing in the last mile and investing in the poorest? I think that's really the paradigm we need to, to, to change um, by looking at the investigation in education and looking at also how we... And make also the content of the learning and the curriculum more relevant to the context, request or meet the need of young people, meet the need of their community, meet the need of the labor market. There are a lot of issues that needs to be pulled together to look at the issue that was existing prior to the COVID and take the momentum created around the attention we have now on education to solve this.
1: Thanks, Mohammed. Thanks very much for your answer. We're gonna go back to the poll and see what our um our audiences said. If you could bring up the poll results, please. Okay. So if we just to remind you of the question, if you were a minister of finance or president in a low to middle income country in sub-Saharan Africa, where would you concentrate your limited resources during the COVID era? Uh, our audiences said to build the human capital. So echoing very much the messages coming out from our panelists through better educational opportunities, vocational skills, green jobs, digital literacy, youth entrepreneurship and climate mitigation measures. Um, on, on this, I'm gonna to turn to uh, the young people that we're talking about, and, and in some ways give them the final word today, um, Eugenie and Donny, um, and I'm gonna ask you really, the issue is, you've heard a lot of things about your futures uh, as Africa's youth. Uh, you've heard both Mohammed and As say that you are the, 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 the best asset that the continent has. Uh, what do you think is a game changer? How can we restore confidence? And most importantly, how can youth participation not become something which is a rarity, but something which is part of Africa's normality as it goes forward? I'm gonna ask that first to you, Eugenie, and then to it. Thank you, David, for the question.
5: Uh, how can we restore confidence and how can we? Uh, I think something that is important to me and my own impression of living away from home for so long and having to go back often is that um, the young people in Africa in most part have lost hope and confidence in the older generation because the older, we felt like the older generation did not give us the opportunity, did not empower us, um, even when we learn from wherever we are and we want to bring that back home, we still don't have the space to express that. So I think the game changer would be stop talking about young people, actually talk to them and invite them to the conversation. Ask them, what do you need to become what you need to become in order for our continent to stop being the continent to be saved, but the continent that participate in making the world a better place. That's, that's it for me.
1: Thanks, Eugenie.
2: Thanks very much. And Donny? Eugenie just said it perfectly. And I think she's so right in saying that we've almost lost confidence and there needs to be almost like a confidence boost amongst young people and our leaders in believing in their ideas, in believing in their innovation, in believing in the change that they say they want in the country. And I think for, for that to happen, there needs to be implementation. I believe that we have so many policies, so many uh, documents written down on paper and the challenge always goes to implementation and so there needs to be a better implementation of the policies that we have, a more um, higher regard for experts in these fields and putting experts in leadership positions so that they can be better advisors to our leaders, to knowing how to actually make the change for the young people. And most importantly, we need everybody to work together. So we need private sector and government to work together in investing and not only giving skills and capacity training to young people, but actually giving them capital and saying, you want a green job, I believe in you. Here's the capital to start your venture. You want to understand how you mitigate climate change. Here are the skills and here is the capital for you to actually overcome these kind of changes. And once we do that, I think young people will start having confidence and our voice will be different in how we view actually our, our challenges in Africa.
1: Thank you so very much. And thanks to all of our panelists for their wonderful participation. Back to you, Sarah.
0: Thank you. And what a great note to end on. I think that, but, uh, unfortunately to to our older panelists, the two younger panelists, and we did speak with them, not to them, uh, have really shown that despite the fact that there is perhaps lack of hope, they've given us a sense of hope, I think, for ending this particular Leading Minds, but also ending 10 Leading Minds sessions at the end of this, what we could call, anus Horribilis. <laughs> it's really been uh, a year like no other that humanity has, has ever known. Uh, and we've, had, we've covered everything from the beginning of the year, children online, remote learning, hygiene, uh, violence in the home, the economic crisis. It's all being lived. We can only hope that next year will be somewhat different. So from me, Sarah Crowe, and from David. me,
1: David Anthony, thanks to all of our panelists, to As, Mohammed, Eugenie and Donny. Thanks to you all for coming and watching the show every few weeks uh uh from me and Sarah. Uh have a safe and happy new year and we'll see you next spring. Goodbye. Thank you very much,
3: but I didn't know there was any old panelists.
1: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you, us, huh? <laughs> the
0: the wis- the wisdom lives on. The wisdom gives us eternal spring. <laughs> and- Talking about spring, we're going to be back in the spring next year, as David mentioned. Uh, We hope that the spring, the European and the Northern Hemisphere spring at least, will be a time for renewal. We really need that. So until then, everything of the best for this uh, holiday period, and we'll see you in 2021. Bye-bye now.
1: Bye-bye.